Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers Festival. The Symphony of Seduction was recorded at the 2018 festival and features Christopher Lawrence in conversation with Paul Bevan. Musical interludes are performed by David Banny, Gavin Clark and Peter Guy. <laughs> Hello, good afternoon. Welcome to the last event on the program. Yes, we officially declared this festival closed. Yes, <laughs> we'll reassemble the ribbon at the end of our conversation. <laughs> um, I'm Paul Bevan. I present the Drive program on 1233 ABC Newcastle, and obviously they have saved the best till last. Who's been to at least one other event? Who's been to at least one other Christopher event? Who has a copy of Christopher's book? We need, we need a copy of Christopher's book for later in, later in our conversation. So I'll, I'll bear that in mind, have it ready. Uh, I'm in, here to introduce you to a man that I've sort of worked with for a couple of decades in ABC local radio and presenting the same programs on ABC Classic FM, but we've never done this at the same time. In fact, until now, we've never been seen in the same room at the same time, so until now, we could have been the same person. Identical. He's been presenting his weekend breakfast program from our Newcastle studios this weekend, which has been a great uh, privilege for us. Please welcome Christopher Lawrence. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Paul. Thank you. I hope you reset the alarm and turned the lights off oh, as you left. Sleeping <laughs> tomorrow. Is that what that noise I've been hearing oh, from Newcastle? I spent the entire weekend talking to former ABC Classic FM breakfast <laughs> I had 80 years yesterday. Yes. And of course you had That's three, right. two or three years. That's right. I did. Mm. We've, we've, we've been trying to think of a uh, collective noun for Classic FM breakfast presenters. Yes, a serial of breakfast <laughs> presenters. <laughs> Cockadoodle do. Uh, Christopher's book is called Symphony of Seduction and we'll be discussing sex and passionate trysts and the nature of love and who better to do that than five men. <laughs> <laughs> So let me introduce the five men. If you're a listener to my program on our local radio here on 1233, you'll be familiar with David Banny. He uh, joins me on a Thursday afternoon where we talk about all kinds of different things to do with life and music. And David is a, a composer, a conductor, uh, a music educator and a broadcaster and a festival performer. And he's with us this afternoon. This is David Banny. Peter Guy, who is the, uh, the Master of Choristers and Organist at Christchurch Cathedral. Oh, wow. uh, but his, his principal claim to fame is as a member of Newcastle's newest boy band, Quintus, in which, in which he sings with me. There are, <laughs> there are five of us, so Peter and I are great mates. Please welcome Peter Guy. And Gavin Clark, who is an excellent cellist. He's a fantastic teacher as well and he is the principal cello in David's group, the Christchurch Camerata. This is Gavin Clark. There are, uh, incidentally, I'm very keen to introduce the tree stump here and bring it continuously into our conversation. <laughs> Christopher said, I'll, I'll just follow you, and I went, okay, well, there's a tree stump needed, obviously, so we'll, uh, we'll see how we can get that into it. I'm sure it fits somewhere. There are 11 stories in Symphony of Seduction, and I'm keen, Christopher, to hear you tell four or five of these stories as the afternoon goes on. Uh, with our magnificent soundtrack here, who will illuminate some of the stories. 
Um, your book itself comes with an illustrative soundtrack. It does, it does. It's, uh, we, there were so many specific references throughout the book uh, that when we, when we finished it, I thought, well, maybe this would be a help to, to readers to be able to procure the music and, uh, and listen to precisely to what is being referred to. Because it's not just illustration, it often motivates the narrative. It's, uh, it's quite well, interesting. Well, let's start by sort of tearing all that down and seeing... Back to a tree stump. <laughs> Back to the tree yeah. stump. Yeah. And seeing whether the theme of the book, the romance, mm. and the seduction actually plays out in any of the music that the composers were writing at the time of their torrid, sordid yeah. romance. Mm. So bringing the band in straight away, could we, could we hear a bit of Eric Satie? And um, he was writing this Nyosien number five. Would you briefly just tell us the, the, the point in the story of, the, of Sati where he's, he's kind of thinking and composing the, the Nocien. Yeah, now Eric Sati, is that a name that uh, rings bells? Yeah, he's um, a highly eccentric um, composer who in retrospect is probably one of the more original and influential musicians of the 20th century. I mean, if, if, I, if people say to me, who, who really mattered? Who, who really changed things? I say, uh, Louis Armstrong, most definitely. Okay. I say Bing Crosby, right. um, and I say uh, Eric Satie. Uh, the sort of the, 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 the things that come out of them basically shape what we have now. Who, expected, who expected him to say any of those names? <laughs> <laughs> let's, hear, let's hear Satie. This is Nossian number five. So while you're listening to that music, are you thinking romance? <laughs> are you thinking cold? What, what are you thinking? What, what are you thinking? Uh, I'm thinking of, well, I think of two things. One is that, um, doesn't it sound incredibly modern? Don't you think? It's so, this is 1888, this music. This is five years after the death of Wagner. And the music is absolutely stripped back. It's, it's like the, all the upholstery has come off that late Victorian furniture, so you've got a bare frame. So that's the first thing I think, I think of. In the context of the book, it's, it essentially mimics the implacable walk of Eric Satie, who was so poor, uh, he actually literally lived in a cupboard at one point in his life. Very, very poor, and eventually went to live in a very nondescript suburb uh, about seven or eight kilometres from Paris itself. And every day, uh, late in the day, he would put on uh, one of six identical suits. He always looked exactly the same every day. And he would walk into Paris, uh, because, of course, he couldn't afford to take public transport. And there's something about that tread, that implacable tread of him walking into town for meetings, usually in cafes, usually involving a lot of absinthe, <coughs> in fact, copious amounts of absinthe, and um, then after midnight, walking back to the sober. He'd do it every day. He moved into this, this apartment he had 
in the 1890s. He died in 1925 at the age of 59 of cirrhosis of the liver. Mm -hmm. no, one, no one ever entered the apartment in, in that sort of 29 odd years that he lived there. It was only after he died that, of course, they think, well, we have to get his effects and clean, you know, clean all this out. And they, they literally broke the door in and found an apartment that had never been cleaned. There were two pianos, two baby grands, one stacked on top of the other upside down that was used as a filing cabinet. Inside the pianos were uh, all the utility bills that he'd received, most of which were unopened, buried under layers of dust, and a cache of letters, unsent love letters to the one uh, relationship that he had in his life. What a strange person. It's, it, <laughs> you can hear it, can't you? You can. And we'll hear one of the other pieces that appears frequently on romantic compilations. Um, uh, we'll hear another piece of Eric Satie in, in full uh, coming up shortly. But, uh, so that's Eric Satie. Strange man, unromantic in some way, but has written something that's come out as a very romantic it's piece. Very, I find it very affectionate and quite lo lonely music, don't you think? That, yes. That high, it's written very high on the right hand of the piano. It sort of wanders all by itself. We'll, no hear, we'll hear his Gymnopoly number one um, mm. in full in just a moment. But Wagner, who you think of as being extraordinarily romantic, mm. wrote an opera about <laughs> love, which is Tristan and yep. Isolde. Yep. Um, so when you deliberately set out to write music about romance, what do you, what do you get? Um, you get um, the description of, in Wagner's case, a state of total disorder and lack of resolution. Do we want to actually bring, bring some Wagner into the, into the conversation as good, you're talking this is a good about cue. here? <laughs> yes, hang on. <laughs> Say that again. Tree stump and Isolde. Tree stump and Isolde. Excellent. <laughs> there's, there's, there's our first uh, welcome to the tree stump, David. Thank you. Let's hear, let's hear some of Tristan and Isolde. I might leave that sort of vaguely near you, David, if that's okay. And if you want to pitch in, pick it up. So is this, is this your disorder? A few more bars and you'll hear. Can you do the next couple? Yeah. Are we there yet? <laughs> I reckon we can 
that, so that, we, that explains the case. Now, that music has been playing tricks with you. Um, that's music from the, the 1850s. And the, what's happened there is, firstly, you've heard all of the, the notes of the chromatic scale, all 12 of them. But when you reflect on what you've just heard, the music tonally didn't start anywhere, and it doesn't appear to be going anywhere. There is no resolution. It's actually very hard to tell what key that, that music is in. It, there is no ground. There is no bass. There's no platform, tonally speaking. And what's remarkable about, about the opera is that for the, for the next three and a half hours that you hear the opera, the same effect applies. There's no sense of, of a, a landing anywhere, tonally speaking. It finally resolves, uh, as, Dave, as David knows, right at the end of the opera when, when love has basically uh, killed everybody. The two lovers have had to die. The Liebestort. It's a long story about love, adulterous love. The, the fellow tree stump is, uh, is, is killed. And Isolde resolves that um, to sublimate their love, she, she has to die. She, she dies of a sort of a transcendent ecstasy. And at the moment she dies, just before she dies, we finally land, tonally speaking. It takes all of that time. This is, this is the one single piece of music that blew the whole canon of Western music up to that point apart. So the depiction of love in this instance, rather than being a sort of a steamy, sort of gushy, syrupy thing, is actually all about a sort of a breakdown, a, de a, a true decadence, a decadence, a falling away from all of the norms, all of the tonal norms, all of the rules and regulations that applied in music. Uh, love was a destructive force. And was he, well was he doing that deliberately in order to demonstrate romance in music? I, look, absolutely, I think. I think he meant to... Uh, he'd been reading a lot of Eastern philosophy, a lot of Buddhism, and he'd been reading um, as well uh, a philosopher called Schopenhauer, which is um, the manifestation of will, and it's very complicated, manifestation of will in the world. And, um, but m most importantly, he was conducting probably not um, an adulterous tryst with the wife of his landlord, who was, um, his landlord was a, a wealthy silk merchant called Otto Wesendonck, lived in, outside Zurich on an estate. Wagner was stateless, he was an exile from uh, Saxony. He'd been involved in the revolution of 1848. And um, this silk merchant said, come and live at my place. You know, you seem like a poor wandering soul. Come and live at my place and bring your wife and you know, we'll make you happy there. And um, Wagner conceived a passion, or perhaps they both conceived a passion, the wife of the landlord and Wagner which was the fuel, was the engine, the passion of this, was the engine that drove Tristan and Isolde. Can we, can we get a resolution? So this is we, four and a half hours of love. Four and a half hours later. Yeah. <laughs> we, we get a resolution.
nice when you get there, but it's a long wait. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Wagner, Wagner's a, you know, he's not a particularly pleasant individual. Um, who's played him in the cinema? Trevor Howard played him. Uh, Richard Burton played uh, Wagner in a, in a very famous television miniseries back in the 80s, actually. Mm -hmm. mm. Mozart. Mm. Uh, what a child. Yeah, yeah. Look, possibly slightly misrepresented in the, in the film Amadeus, um, which also heavily misrepresented Salieri, you know, the whole legend about Mozart being supposedly poisoned. This is a guy who died at the age of 35, Mozart. Well, but he was a child, wasn't he? He was, <laughs> he was a child. He was. Um, didn't grow yeah, to you, adulthood. Yeah. That's right. I mean, composing, composers, of, it's a young person's game, really. Mm. The, the list of composers who didn't get to 40, you know, Mozart, Chopin, Mendelssohn, George Gershwin, George Bizet, the guy who wrote Carmen. It goes on and on. If you want to hear old people's music, you, you get rock and roll. Yeah, that's right. Put on, put on some Paul McCartney. Um, so Mozart, very different sort of uh, romantic mind. Yeah. A, a lot of, from what we understand, a lot of uh, relationships and a lot of consummation of those relationships, mm. um, but it, what a, a weird sense of humour and a weird kind yeah, of a... Yeah. So how does that play out in, in a, Mozart's the, the, music? The Mozart chapter is highly scatological um, uh, because uh, much of the dialogue is sourced from letters both by Mozart to his parents and vice versa. Back in the middle of the 18th century in Salzburg in, in Austria, where the sound of music takes place, at Salzburg in Austria, um, so-called Salzburg humour was very, it was very sort of Benny Hill, you know, very, um, very sort of English sea, Butland seaside humour, a lot of farting yeah. jokes and a lot of, yeah. um, a lot of, a lot of um, references to sort of, you know, faecal activity. I mean, all, all of that. They used to joke, to joke to each other about breaking wind and they, it was very so. Oh, you, and more, and more, yes. mo more than polite co company like that. this would would bear. Yeah, I mean, was Martin, that a Mozart family thing or a no, German it a, Salzburg? It was a, it was a Salzburg, okay, it was a Salzburg right thing. Yeah. Okay. So um, it's quite it's quite arresting to because this stuff comes out of the blue. You know, they just that's how they to read the Mozart letters is quite an eye opener. And I'm sure that that's the sort of stuff that uh, Peter Schaffer had in mind when he was writing the Amadeus yes. play. Um, and the, 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 I mean, Mozart's, he's, it's such a transcendent intelligence. Probably a bit of, I mean, I, my, they now reckon probably on the spectrum somewhat, uh, an element of the savant about, about Mozart. It's actually very hard to get a grip on what he was really like. But two things are clear. One is that a lot of people said when he wasn't talking about music, the conversation was pretty ordinary. You wouldn't have thought it was an, it was an exceptional person. But of most interest to me is, with Mozart in particular and, and his operas, is he really somehow understood the, uh, the feminine psyche. He understood women. He adored women. And he, he knew how to portray them in his operas with real depth and complexity. And in fact, to, to show them to be the superior, uh, you know, the, the superior part of, of the world, yeah. of womankind. Um, and in that way, he's about 250 years ahead of Indeed. his time. You know. And I'm very keen to talk to you about women and how they're portrayed in the, in the book, how they come, because it's the, the, with one exception, which we'll get to, mm. uh, the principal character is always the man. Yes. Uh, but the way you've written the women in the book is a very, is a very interesting thing that we'll come to a bit right. later. But David, you've got a, a little bit of uh, Mozart for us. 
bit of a symphony. Yeah. And Thank then <laughs> the brain that's thinking about fecal matter is what's wrong. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's so bizarre. Oh, it's, it's, um, I mean, one of the reasons for writing the book was I was, I was fascinated. And if you, I was talking about this yesterday for those who were there. I was fascinated by, this, by the disjunct between um, what happens when you fall in love or experience desire. It's when you're at your most disordered. You're all over the shop, essentially. Um, so there's, that part of the brain seems to have turned to mush. On the other hand, you can't write like that. Yeah. This highly organised music without having complete clarity of vision, clarity of purpose, and an extraordinary discipline. And I think, how can the two coexist inside the same sort of cranial space? It's really, really interesting. I, w I want to bring a composer into the, into the sort of the analysis of how music and romance fits together that isn't actually in the book. Mm -hmm. This is Bach. Bach, we know had plenty of experience. <laughs> he had 20, 23, are we up to? What, how many kids? Oh, about, yeah, about 20. About 20, yeah. 20 kids. Yeah. Uh, he, he worked in the world that Peter works in, which is the world of church music, predominantly. <laughs> yes. Peter, Peter is not up to 23 kids yet. Um, but Bach is a fascinating, a fascinating thing, because he, he, uh, you think of Bach as toccatas and fugues and things going crazy with hands and harpsichords and blah, 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 blah all over the place. Could he be, ro be romantic? You, you've got a, a bit of an example, David. Here we are. Well done. Sleep Beautiful. is awake, isn't it? And uh, there's, plenty, there's plenty of Bach um, where he writes the, the opposite of what people who kind of think of Bach as toccatas mm. and fugues would be very surprised to hear Bach writing things like Erbarmadich, for instance, in the Matthew Passion, mm. which would be, you know, mm. astonishing. So uh, is, is he a subject of a future book? Bach? Oh, yeah. He's a, yeah. <laughs> There's another one to go. Bach one's interesting because um, he, he's a deeply passionate man, very, very passionate man, uh, given to violent outbursts. He was uh, once arrested for publicly brawling. It's very hard to imagine this sort of jowly guy in a wig sort of throwing a few punches, but indeed um, yeah, yeah. That, that, that happened. Yeah, he's a very passionate man with, the, with uh, two wives. Um, the, his yes. first wife died whilst he was away on tour, and then he, he picked up his second wife, um, Anna Magdalena Bach, he, the name you might know. And they had, uh, yes, 20 children altogether. They estimate that there were never fewer than about five kids in the Bach household. And he taught kids as well, didn't he? He did. Yeah, so there were yeah. kids all over the place. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. He's amazing. Um, I mean, look, you, yeah, we'll talk about that some other time. We will. Go, Bach to come. Mm. Uh, we've got one little more further piece of Bach. Would you like to do a little bit of solo cello for us, Gavin? Beautiful. Bach, shallow sweet. Well done. Um. <laughs>
So now, now we come back to Eric's RT, and uh, this is the piece that is included on all the, the, the albums to make love to, to be romantic to the dinner with just the two of you and the glass of wine and, and the sati <laughs> comes on. Mm. Why is that? Why, why, I, I still, when I think of this um, gymnopody, uh, I, I sort of think of walking around a, a cold white marble statue. That's interesting. Looking at the statue from different perspectives. Mm. It's, 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 uh, do, do you see where it fits onto the romance? Look, it's got, that, um, it's got that sound about it. We're obviously going to hear it. Um, and this, again, is music by a man in his early 20s uh -huh. who'd been basically expelled from every educational institution that he had, had the misfortune to wander into um, and was even then becoming a real marginal as far as living was concerned, deeply eccentric, quite clearly. Was he making money playing in a cafe? I know he played in cafes. Yes, he was. I don't know if it was his job. Not very or not. much, but in the 1880s and 90s, yes, he did. He worked as a cafe pianist. It's the full cliche, the, you know, the, the cafe pianist in Montmartre. You know, when when um, that that whole set, that subset of people begin to come in. Montmartre was a very poor part of Paris in, yeah. in those days, which is why Picasso and the others went to live there because it was the only bit of Paris you could afford to live in. And so there are wonderful cafes that explored um, alternative art, you know, strange theatre performances, bizarre puppet shows and mime shows, with the guy with the fag in the corner hammering away at the piano. Okay. And that's the milieu in which, in which Sati functioned at that point. But he's writing his music that is so utterly unlike the plush, florid, late Victorian romantic music we tend to think about, like, like Wagner. This is so utterly different. There's a coolness about it. There's a, there's a sparseness about it okay. that is always contemporary. And I think a very French sound. It sounds like a French film, doesn't it? When you, when you yes, hear it. yeah, I guess so. So yeah. he was setting that up. He was. Let's hear it. This is the, uh, the Gymnopody number one.
Bravo. <clears throat> There's a sort of an unresolved... Yeah, well, there's no structure. Yeah. It's, just, it's just a tune that it's, he's just ripped all the rules and thrown them away. And um, that's what's great about Sati. He, he made us realise that the rules could be, could be broken. It was very fashionable in France to, to do that. Um, there's a famous playwright at the time called Maurice Maeterlinck who said, at first, one must disobey, he said. And that's what, that's what mm -hmm. Sati did. He was a, an impoverished, you know, it's, it's in the book, an impoverished pianist, composer in Montmartre who falls in love with an artist's model, um, uh, an extraordinary woman called Suzanne Valadon, very intelligent and a marvellous artist herself, but a former uh, circus performer. She'd been a, uh, an acrobat and worked on the trapeze. And uh, they had this affair that went for six months and she eventually um, an dumped him. An actual affair? It was an actual yes. affair. Okay. And... Um, he wrote a beautiful song um, uh, called Je Te Veux, I Want You, which is a, a gorgeous, gorgeous song. And she dumped him for a banker, mm -hmm. as I guess artists, models could do in those yes. days. And he was, um, he was so furious about it that uh, he pushed her out the window. Um, they were several stories up. He pushed her out the window and then ran off to the police station and uh, said, um, I've... I'm arresting myself, I've just, I've just murdered my girlfriend. They said, mon dieu, sacre bleu, what have you done? Out the window. So they ran to the courtyard where her body should have been. There was no body there. Um, so they surmised that she sort of did a tri triple pike on the way down. <laughs> bounced off an awning and walked away. So they, they're coming looking for a body. She's down at the pub down the road, yeah. you know. Um, Thank goodness for Eric. Yeah. So uh, Eric might make another appearance in our, in our conversation a bit later on, but I'd love to get into some of the, uh, some of the stories in depth that you mm -hmm. tell in the book, The, uh, the Symphony of Seduction. Uh, let's, let's move to Hector Berlioz. Oh, what, a, what a topic. What a, what, what? A, what a place to start. You, yeah. think, you thought you liked Hector Berlioz? Oh, yeah. Um, he was, in, he was in Rome. We might come back to the Prix de Rome that took him to Rome uh, at some stage later in, the, in mm. our conversation. Um, he uh, receives a letter from Camille. What, what does the letter? The mother. He's, oh, yes, uh, from Camille's mother. Yes. This is, uh, the, I mean, this, is a, this is the guy who said music and love are the two wings of the soul. Marvellous stuff. He said, um, lo uh, what is it? Love, love can give no idea of music, but music can give an idea of love. He was very romantic. And uh, he'd already had this uh, long and unrequited um, infatuation with an Irish actress, um, which had resulted in his famous Symphonie Fantastique, the Fantastic Symphony, which he wrote at the age of 26. But he then became engaged to this gorgeous 18-year-old girl called Camille Moak, a beautiful pianist, very talented girl. And they became engaged, and he then won this prize, the Prix de Rome, which meant that he had to leave Paris and go to Rome for a couple of years. And he said, I, I'm just getting going in Paris. You know, my music's being played, I'm engaged. They said, no, you have to go, you have to, go to Rome. So he went off to Rome and waited and didn't hear anything. And he ventured out of Rome and got to Florence and went to the post office. And there was a letter from his putative mother-in-law, Camille's mother, saying, um, I'm afraid that uh, Camille's married someone else. Uh, you've been out of Paris now for several weeks and she's met and married someone else. And he was so demented by this knowledge that he, he decided he would dress up in drag as a lady's maid, go back to Paris, 
um, get into their house in drag, uh, and then once he was inside the house, pull out two pistols, shoot the mother, shoot the fiance, and then shoot himself. And off he went in drag. Off to Paris. He also, just as a backup, he had laudanum and strychnine. Yes, he had to take just himself. In case. And also yeah. because it was perhaps a bit more operatic to to be able to confess while dying to whoever yeah. whoever is there. Yeah, I mean, this is you know, he clearly wasn't of sound mind at the time. No. And he had the pistols, so he's, he's going to do this. He had yes. the pistols. Yeah. He got the ladies' maids' uh, uniform made to yes. his size. Yes. Which yes, they, he gave them a day to do it, and off he went. But of course, going it's Italy, so they lost the luggage. <laughs> he had he had another another of these commissions. <laughs> he got another outfit <laughs> because they lost it. He was he was very determined. Now here. I'd like us uh, to read. Do you want to do it, Christopher, or do you want me to do the first one? You will be reading at some stage. Yes, no. Do the first, or will I do it? You go for it. So it was quite simple, really. A lady's maid was sure to obtain an entrance to the mock, is that how we say it? Mock mansion? Yeah. Menage. Once inside, he would produce his primed pistols and dispatch Camille's mother and fiancé with the same precision he employed on Italian quail. Camille's own end would have a little more theatricality. Seizing her hair with one hand as if she were a Medusa, he would fling his hat and veil away with the other, <laughs> declaim something to do with faithlessness, hell and vengeance. Shakespeare would provide the right words at the moment. And then ensure her brains were removed from her head in as spectacular a way as possible. Mm. So that was the plan. Yeah. Uh, so then he loses the luggage. Yep. Where is he at this point? Where he's, uh, he's travelled on his coach. They've yeah. lost the luggage during a switch. Yeah, somewhere near Genoa, I think. I the, think the, there's, a, the, there's a, the revolution plays a part because he was planning to go kind of straight up to Paris, but he had to, they wouldn't let a Frenchman into whatever mm. place it was because they were having revolutions and they yes. thought this would be terrible. Yeah. So they divert the carriage. Yep. He, do you want to have a go at the second one? Yes. What There's a page turn involved. Oh, you yeah. Go, you start there. Um, Off you go. His new outfit was ready as promised by the end of the afternoon and stashed into the side compartment of the Nice mail coach when it left Genoa at six. Remember, Italy wasn't Italy back. This is 1831. Um, uh, Berlioz, now wearing a change of dry clothes, rehearsed at the Parisian denouement again and again, each time painting a little more blood and extruded brain matter onto the grim scene that would greet the gendarmes when they responded to the screams of the servants. Ah, a crime of passion, one would say, inspecting the corpse with the pistol still clenched in its hand. Mon Dieu, it is the composer Berlioz, is it not? Would say the other, whose taste rose above the quotidian into the exalted world of high art and fashion. <laughs> This is a tragedy of Shakespearean proportions, the first might say, although, as Berlioz conceded within seconds, it was far more likely he might not. <laughs> Quote, the world has lost a great creative spirit. Who knows what other masterworks he might have written? And such style to die in that fabulous frock, the other would conclude. <laughs> so, he... And, well, of course, yeah. It didn't happen. But he ended up in the Mediterranean. He, he, uh, he either jumped or fell into the sea, hmm. was fished out by... Tried to kill himself. From, by fishermen. So he's so inflamed with this passion, hmm. he literally tries to kill himself. 
he, the fishermen, I don't know how yeah. you know what the fishermen say here, but you, <laughs> in the book, yeah. the fishermen say, you went down twice, yeah. monsieur. This, this is all true. They pulled I mean, him out. Yeah, I mean, these guys, I mean how, how wild is this guy? Um, so he eventually, you know, goes through two frocks and then he tries, he jumps <laughs> off a castle and gets fished out. And then he, he eventually, uh, won, uh, on a stormy night heading into Nice, he suddenly has an epiphany, you know, and thinks, I'm not going to honour this woman with, you know, with, this, with my passion. I'm going to live. You know, I can, I can do other things. And he decides he won't, he won't go through with it. He, um, he realises that in his mind, he's, he's hearing music. This, yes. I'm quoting Christopher here. He, uh, and he's going, where do I know that from? And then he realises, I don't know it from anywhere. I'm actually composing it myself in my head. <laughs> the, I think this is the piece. This is the piece that he is composing. It's The Reverie and, Cap and Caprice by, by Berlioz. Oh, good on you, Hector. Thank you. <laughs> you, don't, you don't hear... The, it's, I'm so grateful for the book, not that we're coming to the end of our conversation, but I'm so grateful for the book because you don't hear these things. You don't hear that the composers were so impassioned that they tried to kill themselves, in some cases a number of times, and they yeah. literally were going to go and shoot someone's brains out. It's, it's phenomenal. Here's another composer that you thought you liked, um, <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> but here's something you didn't know about them, Puccini. Oh yes, Puccini. Oh. Uh, there's a little preamble to the chapter on Puccini um, involving a naked audition for a soprano yes. that left me wondering, is that real? Do we know? Yeah. Uh, oh, good heavens. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so that, I'll leave you to read that in the book. Yep. Uh, but we, uh, we're in the year 1908. Uh, Torre del Lago mm. is a place in Italy. Can it you... is. It's a, a town in Italy by, by del Lago, by a lake. Okay. So it's, uh, and it's, uh, that's where the Puccini Villa was and still is, in fact. It's a, it's a Puccini museum now. He um, was extraordinarily famous around Italy and probably the world at Fa this time. Absolutely. One of the most commercially successful classical composers who ever lived. He, he had a car accident, just to give an example of how famous he was, he had a car accident, 
Um, so there's something you may not have known. There are a few composers, in fact, who've met their, met their end or almost yeah. in vehicular accidents. I mean, Carl's accidents. only went at about 15 miles an hour and he still managed to crash. <laughs> That's right. Uh, he was seriously injured. His wife and child were also in the car. They were not injured. They were thrown clear or they weren't injured anyway. But when he was so badly injured, the news of Puccini's car accident went all over the world. Mm. He received a letter from the... King of Italy. King of Italy. Mm. Thank you. Get I was well. thinking, was it, a, was it a president of that state? No, it was the king. <laughs> um, so this brings Doria into their life. Yes. So because of the car accident, he's convalescing. It takes a long time. Doria is a maid who comes mm. into their life. Can mm. we, what, what do we know about Doria? Oh, look, it's, it's actually a terrible story <clears throat> in that uh, Puccini was uh, uh, highly um, ad adulterous. Man. I mean, in fact, even his wife was uh, a woman who he'd stolen from another another man, and uh, uh, he he and his wife had to live sort of live in sin, waiting for her first husband to die under Italian law before they could finally get married. And they'd had a so, but in the meantime, he he um, he he frequently toured Europe with productions of his operas, and and obviously had. Um, peccadilloes along the way. So his wife had a great, re great reason to be suspicious of him, but what happened was that she became convinced that he was having an affair with one of the servants in their house, one of the maids, um, a local village girl called Doria Manfredi. And the wife decided, look, you know, what he does on tour can stay on tour, but this is at home and I'm not going to stand for it. And she set about <clears throat> publicly humiliating this young girl who then uh, took it so badly that she killed herself. The maid committed suicide. Um, and when Just before you, you've yep. jumped ahead, you've jumped to, oh. the, you've jumped to the end. Sorry. <laughs> oh, there's more to come. There's yeah. more to come. Just before we get to that, mm. um, the wife of Puccini was so familiar with the fact that he was philandering all over the place <clears> that <throat> she took steps to put, to put him off, to yes. reduce his ardour. Can, you, can yeah. you explain what she did? Oh, she put sort of camphor in his trouser pockets, thinking that... <laughs> thinking that somehow the aroma might, you know, deactivate. <laughs> she spiked, yeah. his, spiked his drinks she with... Spiked, she spiked his drinks and spiked his trousers. <laughs> to, um, and uh, she would occasionally um, get dressed in his clothes and follow him around, um, uh, and sort of, which is what she was doing in the village. There was a very uh, operatic scene in the village, in fact, the, yes. the denouement, where... Where she basically <clears throat> abuses this woman and, and exclaims. It's one of those very operatic scenes where she tells the entire village what she is convinced has been happening in their house. Um, and um, Doria, who's, uh, who's got a relative who runs the local, local village inn, um, they hasten out of the inn and sort of lead this poor, totally distraught girl away. And you make the point that uh, in Puccini operas, Menon Lesko and Mimi and Floria Tosca and Chocho San, none of them end their operas alive. No, he tends to kill his sopranos, um, uh, Puccini, except in Turandot, because he died before he finished it, so... Um, <laughs> couldn't, Doria, couldn't. As, as Christopher said, giving away the end <laughs> of the story, she dies, she kills herself when she dies. Mm. And she, to her last breath, is saying, it was not the maestro. We did mm. not have the affair. He that's had right. been saying this all along as well. He said, I, I, So this I, is the affair he did not have. That's right. And then when they conduct a post-mortem, um, it turns out she's a virgin. So, in fact, she'd been unjustly accused. Her family took her to court, took Puccini's wife to court and won. 
and she was due to be imprisoned for, for, for slander, amongst other things. The Puccini family had to pay off this girl's family to sort of get the whole thing settled. Yeah. It's a really, and it, this became, uh, he was trying to write an opera called The Girl of the Golden West, La Fanchula del West. He was writing it for the, for the Metropolitan Opera in New York, for Caruso to sing and Toscanini to conduct. And of course, you can imagine how good this was for his compositional activity, sort of getting, getting this going. Again, a, a complete scandal that, you know, I mean, th this is 1908, you can imagine. It's a huge scandal. Enormous, enormous. Mm. Let's hear some music. This is, um, this is Puccini. Some highlights from Madame Butterfly, one of his operas, uh, written into the form of a trio. Actually, Paul, as a Madame Butterfly, yeah? One fine day. Just as an aside to that, um, you always think old masterpieces, they sort of come into the world and we welcome them and we, you know, they, have, they have a clear passage. But the, the first performance of Madame Butterfly is, uh, was, is one of the great disasters, one of the great first night disasters in the history of opera. The audience absolutely hated it. Now, if we go to a, a, new, a new... If you come here and there's a new piece being played and you don't like it, we'll normally just sort of sit there going... Five more minutes to go. <laughs> but in Italy, of course, they, they decide someone must pay. So they just hooted and hollered and catcalled and laughed all the way through the show. Um, and it, it ended in laughter. And uh, at the end of the performance, this is at La Scala in Milan, Puccini ran into the pit, grabbed at the score and said, they won't be hearing that again, and left the theatre. And of course, that wasn't enough for the crowd. Uh, many of whom followed Puccini in the street back to his hotel and stood under his hotel room all night abusing him from the street. <laughs> um, incredible, isn't it? Madame Butterfly. 
that which opera houses would put on now in order to make money. <laughs> we, we need to <laughs> drag right. them in. Let's put yep. on Butterfly. Yeah. Oh, yep. astonishing. So that's Puccini. Puccini, yeah. And there's an uh, interesting postscript to that, that whole tawdry tale, uh, which takes us right up to the last few years. Uh, it, it's in the book. There's an amazing development that came from that. Indeed. Mm. You, would you like to tell it now? Or leave no, no, it? no, it's, no, a, it's put a, it in the book. It's it a is. spoiler. It's an, it is. It's an amazing thing. <laughs> spoiler. Clara Schumann. So this ah. is the this is the only uh, composer in or the the lead character in the book who is a woman. Yep. Clara Schumann. Um, uh, well, and immediately having said that, I divert to Robert Schumann, her <laughs> husband. <Yeah. laughs> he was the archetypal romantic composer. Yeah. Um, is that why you include passages like this? Clara's chapter, forgive me for one moment, just is, finding Clara. Is this the one with Robert? Yeah. This is, Christopher, I need you to read this bracketed oh. piece here. Off oh, go. goody. Um, okay, so this is a, a story about Robert and Clara Schumann. This is, one of the, the, this is actually one of the most famous romantic stories in classical music, how Robert and Clara got together. And um, it starts with him wanting to kiss her. Okay, and um, it starts with a kiss. Uh, they kissed lightly at first and then more hungrily as she followed his example with the precocity of a quick study. Robert remembered Romeo's instruction to let lips do what hands do and thought it was bad luck for the young Veronese, that is Romeo, that Juliet was not a virtuoso pianist. <laughs> Clara's mouth progressed from simple scales to arpeggios in no time at all and, and as she moved to the cadenza her eyelids fluttered the kiss settled into a clear A major final chord before a slow release of lips into post-performance silence. He half expected the sound of applause. And we've all had a kiss like that, don't you think? <laughs> Some with applause. With applause. <laughs> so how did they meet? How did Robert and Clara meet? Um, well, Clara's in two stories in the book. I mean, I, I find her one of the most remarkable musicians of all time and just an extraordinary woman. Uh, they met when um, she, her father, who was her teacher, uh, took into his studio to teach this young composer who was some uh, nine years Clara's senior. And she was very precocious, well, a child prodigy, an astonishing talent, even as a child. And, uh, and Robert knew her from, from that time. And as the years went by, feelings deepened. And um, they clearly fell in love. He had a few uh, peccadillos beforehand, uh, but they fell in love. But her father, I don't want to preempt you too much. No, that, um, that is the next thing. Friedrich yeah. Wieck. Yeah. What is his problem? He's a real problem. <laughs> well, he, he sees an amazing talent, his daughter, who uh, at the very least can make a lot of money by giving big concerts around Europe. And probably at the very best for him would be to give concerts, but also marry some extraordinarily rich you know, member of the, the nobility, the aristocracy, along the way. And here she is threatening to throw the whole lot away to run off with this slightly uh, impecunious and rather unstable young man, and he just will not allow it to happen. So he separates them in, in every way possible, including forcibly separating them geographically. So he threatens Schumann, he takes his daughter away for months and then years at a time, while, just before you leap into the next bit, while, while they're separated, mm. uh, and you mentioned a couple of peccadillos, yep. one, one was an ongoing peccadillo with a prostitute called Crystal. Yes. With whom, do we know yes, he had he, a child? He yeah, had a child. baby girl with yeah. Crystal. Yeah. 
What, uh, do we know what happened? No, no, no idea. One of those, the, the child is one of those undocumented things. But yeah, look, he was a, you know, he's a guy in his mid-twenties and this girlfriend is seemingly completely out of his reach and um, is away for, for years. Well, young, what are you going to do when you're 25? And, and of course, the, the thing is, is that prostitution was seen as almost as therapy in those days. You know, <laughs> that's, what, that's what they did. But it was a very unsafe thing to do. Totally. A lot of syphilis around. This is, this is something that astonishes me. It's mm. all unprotected sex. There are STDs all over the it place. It kills people. Yep. It kills people all yep. the time. In fact, I don't know whether... I've heard somewhere that these, these people who died of consumption, TB, mm. in many cases it was not TB, it was in fact syphilis. Mm. And they were saying yep. it was TB because it was in fact yeah. syphilis. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of good composers who caught it. And Chabrier, Frenchman, uh, Frederick Delius, and, uh, and, and Schumann himself. And um, in his case, it compounded into all sorts of disastrous health consequences. Before we get there... Mm. Um, uh, he wrote and wrote and wrote. While he wasn't with Clara, he couldn't have Clara, he wrote and wrote and wrote. Mm. You say in the book, all his music was for her, full of things that would pass by unnoticed in a concert hall. We have one of the pieces that he wrote while writing those things. Mm. So that's, that's Troimorai from the yep. scenes of childhood. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why was that something that would pass? What, it, what he would often do would be he, he would encode, he'd, he'd sort of put code into the music that could be registered by certain people. He'd break people's names down and the letters of their names would, would be encoded as the notes of the scale, sort of to form, to form themes. And those, those, who, you know, those to whom it was addressed knew that it was for them. They could, because they'd literally hear for example, the letters of their name replicated in the contours mm -hmm. of the music. It's, um, and of course, it's extraordinarily beautiful. I, though I guess the one thing we, sh we shouldn't uh, leave out of the equation is that thing about talent and genius. I mean, this, you know, Schumann was just an astonishing And talent. these days, I know Horowitz used to use this as, a, as one of his favourite mm. encores, that mm. particular piece. Mm. But is he saying that no one would be impressed by that at the, at the time that he wrote it? No, no, no. He, I mean, the, the idea was to write a piece of music that people would like, but he would, he would take care in certain pieces to encode messages, okay. if you like. That was, um, it's before social media. Indeed. <laughs> and, what, and what else could you do? <laughs> Encoded into your music. Mm. So Clara went off performing. In Vienna, she was a huge success. Yep. Do we know what she would have been playing while she was off touring the world? She was playing some of his music. She was playing some of her own music. She was a wonderful composer. And we're now finally um, starting to, uh, as is the case with many women composers, um, we're now starting to investigate uh, and record and hear and appreciate much of what they wrote. And she turns out to be, you know, a considerable composer. And here's one we prepared earlier. This is Clara Schumann. It's from her, uh, is it a piano trio, David? So, uh, uh, and this is a part of the first movement of Clara Schumann's piano trio. Mm -hmm.
Yes. Astonishing, wonderful. Oh, she was, uh, she was amazing. I, you know, one of the great pianists of, of the 19th century, a formidable composer. She had eight children with Schumann. They, how, the, how they got married is, is much of the story of this. Just, just, can, I, yes. can I leap in just before that? So, some more excerpts from the book. This is Friedrich Wieck at his weirdest. The mad, the, the mad father. The, the mad yeah. father, Clara's father. These are some of the conditions. He finally agreed to the marrying. These are some of the conditions. They had to take him to court. They had, yes, yep. a number of times. They had mm. to take him to court in order for him to agree to their marriage. His conditions are as follows. We cannot, this is uh, Robert speaking, I think. We cannot live here while he is alive, that he keeps all of Clara's concert earnings for five more years, so she continues to perform, he gets all her, on, uh, her earnings. Mm. He appoints someone to audit my, Robert's, financial affairs, and that Clara receives no inheritance. He wants us to assign an agreement to all this. That's first go. Then they tried to get him back to court with better terms. These are the better terms. I request that she purchase all of her belongings and piano from me, says her father. Reimburse me the cost of my tuition from her childhood to now. Pass on to her brothers her lifetime's concert earnings and have 8,000 thalers settled upon her by Herr Schumann, Robert, in the likely event of their separation. That's the second time they tried to get it, yeah, obviously. Piece of work, isn't it? Obviously, this is not going to, uh, going to happen. Yeah. But then he, he goes on to say, I accuse Schumann of being a bad composer. He has poor handwriting. His speech is often incomprehensible. He lies about his income and would have to be supported by my daughter. Frankly, he is a drunkard. Schumann rose to his feet, his face flushing at what was clearly an inconvenient time. Eventually, the court orders that he has to butt out and they get yeah. married. Yeah. yeah. So they get married. They get married. And then he was proved right, of course. Wieck was proved right. She shouldn't have married Robert. What happened after? What well, happened? Um, they had eight children and, uh, and Robert, um, about 12 years after the, the wedding, uh, goes insane jumps off a bridge into the, into the Rhine, tries to kill himself, runs out of the house in a floral dressing gown, throws himself into the river, gets fished out and sent off to an asylum from which he never, from which he never leaves. He dies three years later, leaving her with eight kids to feed, uh, which she does. She goes back, she gets back on the road. She supports the family. She raise, raises the family. She outlives her husband by 40 years. I mean, she is truly a remarkable person, I mean, really extraordinary person. Um, so I wonder, I wonder where, I mean, we probably don't know whether there were any regrets there, but Brahms comes into her life. Well, Brahms had met the Schumanns just before Robert flipped, and Robert Schumann recognised Brahms as a genius. And Brahms is also, uh, this, this book is, it's a panoply of essential, of disasters, and I mean, it's called Symphony of Seduction but hardly anybody gets seduced uh, successfully. <laughs> and um, it, it, most of it ends the way that a lot of our love affairs have ended. And Brahms, but Brahms is the exception that as a 20 year old, he's a truly gorgeous young man, a very glamorous looking young man who the Schumanns adore. And when Robert um, goes under, he moves into the house to help Clara with the children. 
he, Brahms, and I, I don't want to go on to Brahms just yet. We do have some music from Brahms, but I wanted, I'm keen to talk about women in all of this. Clara obviously is a, is a standout star and an, uh, an amazing hero of the book and a hero of 19th century music, yep. a heroine yep. of 19th century music. But the way the other women, they're, they're, with very few exceptions, none of them are sort of flowers on the wall, are they? they they're, they're all powerful women, they are. very different. I, yes, I find in the book that it's the men who actually come off rather badly in the book, and, um, and the women, uh, for the most part, um, even, behave, behave rather better. Even Crystal, the prostitute, yep. seems yep. to know what's going on with Robert far better than he does, mm. Even though she has had his child, yep. she mm. is directing him back to Clara because she knows this is where yes. his love truly lies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the, the women behave with much greater maturity, uh, in, in, in much, as it seems they did in, in the actual affairs in question. Mm. And, and it's also a bit of a common theme amongst the men that they are relatively immature. That's true. Emotionally immature. That's true. And... Um, um, it, this could well be just simply endemic to men. I mean, uh, <laughs> but it's, it seems to be a fact that with a lot of highly creative people, that other bits of their psyche don't quite travel at the same speed. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And, well, particularly this goes very badly in the case the better, the more good looking they are, the worse this goes. And one of the stories that we won't cover this afternoon, Stradella, Stradella. Stradella mm. is a case in point. Brahms was very good looking as a kid, but yeah, didn't, didn't end up all that but well that's, as far that as... Brahms is the interesting one in that the, what, the glamour boy is the one who decides to be the ascetic. Um, yeah. he, he, he's the one composer who actually says, I won't have a relationship. Yeah, even He, get, he gets very close. And Clara's very keen. Clara, Clara's, they're sort of in love with each other, there's yeah. no doubt about it. Um, no one ever knows what, what transpired between them, but they adored each other yeah. and were very good friends until um, she died in 1896, a year before he died. So mm. for 40, more than 40 years, they were extreme, extremely close with some, with some fallings out. But yeah. he's the one that sort of said, look, I can't write music because uh, I, I can't write music and have, have a family. He, that's what he decided. Part of that was just simply where the thought, thinking and the energy went. And the other thing was, I think he was a... Um, he, he, he really couldn't face, if times were bad, he couldn't face the prospect of going home and having to tell a spouse that he'd been a failure. He just simply... There was something in him that wouldn't, wouldn't allow that. If he was, if he was and he was fail, always thinking that, wasn't he? He was always... Yeah, you know, the, yeah, the, he, the wall he, ahead of him was always enormous. That he had to absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So he lived a he lived a bachelor, a solitary bachelor's life all of his life. Uh, can we hear a bit of bit of Brahms? Throw in a bit of Brahms. Uh, what what do you reckon, Christopher? We've got about ninety seconds or about ten seconds. <laughs> let's let's have the let's have the ninety seconds. How about the ninety second one? Is that the piano concerto? Which is it? The first it or is second? from the piano. It's the right. Okay.
Ah, beautiful. Mm. I, I'm always amazed, you know, the, the, the wisdom in music is if you, if you write in a major key, then it's meant to be happy. And then if you write in a minor key, it's meant to be sad. But somehow Brahms can write in a major key and it still sounds sad. <laughs> it's sort of a, there's, there's, I don't know, there's, do you hear it? There's sort of like a regret, there's something there. There's a, a sense of nostalgia and regret mm. in a lot of his slow, slow music, I find. One of the reasons I was so keen to hear some of the music of Brahms, Brahms even though we're not um, dwelling on him too long, is because he could not have been a more different character to our next featured artist, which is Debussy. Oh, yeah. Um, a cat, he could not have been more uh, musically different to Brahms and romantically different to Brahms. Yes, yes. Um, here, I'm not sure if I'm right here, but he, he I think, won the Prix de Rome as well, went he to did. Rome. And he had had a, a youthful liaison for a long period of time, which came to an end. Yes. So it seems to be the way the French government came up with un ending unsuitable relationships, <laughs> send, the <composer, laughs> send the composer to Rome for three years. So, so Debussy did that. But tell us, uh, the, the first character in Debussy's story is a woman by the name of Gabby. Am I saying that right, yep. Gabby? Uh, yep. What do we know about Gabby? Well, he was married, um, and he's, this is the last one we're going to talk about today. Mm. You, are you staying with us? Isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah? Uh, we often think classical music so sort of Olympian and serene, and they turn mm -hmm. out to be complete ratbags. I mean, just all of them. But Debussy's, uh, he's, it's timely for Claude because um, it's 100 years last month. Uh, since he died, 1918, March 1918, in the closing weeks of the First World War, uh, as Paris was ringed by cannon, as a matter of fact. He was buried to the sound of distant cannon as the war was coming to an end. He was... Um, I would love to have met him. He, he was quite waspish, I'm told. You know, he wasn't given to small talk. But there must have been something about him, because he, he, uh, had, he had two marriages um, and a couple of long-term girlfriends. And... Um, uh, the Gabby, Gabby's the, is Gabby the... Gabby um, is the one who, you, you mention in the book that basically before he meets his wife, Lily, who is the ex-model, yep. he breaks off the relationship with Gabby, who oh, yes. shoots herself. Gabby, yes, Gabby, Gabby was a, a long-term relationship and when he broke it off, she shot herself, yeah. yeah. Do we know if she died? Do we know anything about uh, her? She didn't die. Okay. No. no you, in, in Paris in the 1890s, you only shot yourself cosmetically. <laughs> It does seem to be a recurring theme. He didn't want to, he didn't want to ruin a good dress by you know, putting a hole in it, really. So then, but, uh, but Gabby did shoot herself. He yep. uh, he met Lily, who became his wife. Lily um, was a, she was an art, she was a model. She was one of these models who worked as a mannequin. You know, uh, 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 these days we have a, a, a dummy in a shop window wearing a frock, uh, whereas in those days you actually put someone in the frock and they would sort of stand and. And model it for, so that's what uh, that's what she did. And Lily, and uh, apparently extremely beautiful, beautifully a woman. They got married, and uh, lived in genteel poverty in Paris at the turn of the turn of the twentieth century. I think you say she had the best body he would ever see. Yeah, she was. A, <laughs> he he frequently praised her body to her in yeah. in letters that he would write to her. Yep. So Lily, and uh, you would think this is you know, and they all lived happily ever after, but they did not. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us about Faure's relationship with Emma Bardak. So we're flipping composers to Gabriel Faure. Yeah, we are. Emma Bardak, who is, well, who is she? You know Faure, the, the Requiem of Faure and the mm. Pavane of Faure. It's beautiful. Um, yes, he, Faure had a, um, uh, fell in love with this uh, married woman called Emma Bardak. 
in the 1880s. Had, had a, a long-term relationship. Yes, they, they had an affair that went on for years and um, they're very, very passionate about each other. Fora had been engaged before that but had been dumped literally at the altar. She just sort of didn't uh -huh. turn up. And, and they, Foray and Emma Bardock, had a daughter, Dolly, yep. for whom he wrote The Dolly Suite. The Dolly Suite, yeah. Which is, which famous, is well known. Very beautiful, famous. beautiful piece. And Emma Bardock goes on after that being married to a, 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 wealthy, a wealthy man, holding salons in Paris where, you know, the, the, the bright and the interesting could assemble on a Sunday afternoon. What, did, what does happen at the salons? Oh, well, the salons is when, um, depending on your field of interest, you might get writers or composers or both artists to come to sit and make intellectual talk about things and often to perform. Singers would, uh, singers would turn up and, and uh, if a composer was there, we could perform the composer's latest work and... Um, They'd sit around and they were sort of a hot, it was a hot house of, of the intelligentsia in those days. Kind of like a, a very serious party. A, was, a, was like there a serious alcohol? party. Did they, did they drink? Was there kind of partying yes, they, they as were, we would know yes, it? Yes, they, they, were, they weren't back in Alien, although they could go on for a long time and I'm sure a lot much was consumed. But no, it was, it was about getting uh, the best and brightest together to talk about the arts and to compare notes. Um, famously, and you mentioned this coming back, I, I, I wanted to bring Foray into it just to introduce Emma Bardak because she had already had a long-term affair with another composer and a child yep. with that composer. Now she's back with her wealthy uh, husband. husband. <clears throat> Debussy, who you mentioned, famously didn't speak to people. Mm. Um, he was very reclusive, even though he's living with the, with the model. Yep. Um, he was convinced to attend her salon. How did, how did that come about? Oh, I think they were... Um, he was urged to go. It was, it was good networking. You know, if you went to a salon, you might meet uh, someone who could help you with the publication of your music or offer you performance opportunities, you know, get, get a commission. Get some, make some money out and of it. And she'd been keen for him to come, and he, he kept saying no, and yeah, I'm she, not coming. And then she admired his music. She admired, she, and she was very fond of his music. When he came, she sang Beausoir. She sang a song of his called Beausoir, which is a song he'd written for a, um, a girlfriend from, you know, 20 years before. Okay, and we'll hear Beausoir later. Not, don't, don't. <laughs> we'll, hear, we'll hear that in a, in a minute. After she sang, uh, Debussy kisses her on both cheeks. We have, uh, uh, here, person who has the book. Someone who has... The, oh, it's not here. Does someone actually have a physical copy of, Dave, of, uh, of Christopher's book? Yes. Would you mind loaning it to us for just a moment? <laughs> I will come and get it. <laughs> it's a script. We want to read just a little bit from it. Hello, Ruth, yeah. how are you? Is this where the tree stump comes into it, by <laughs> the way? Is this where the, where the, uh, there you go. Yep. Don't dog ear it. Page. <laughs> Uh, so the Debussy chapter, we go to page uh, 189. Right. Uh, you could be Debussy. This is a chapter called Pleasure is the Law, which is actually a direct lift from, from one of Debussy's letters. Um, he said there, is no, there, is no, there are no rules, uh, certainly in music, pleasure is the law. How's that for sybaritic? That's, that pretty much describes the aesthetic of Paris in the last decade of the 19th century. Really. Okay. Mm. Uh, 186, is it? Page 186, starting yep. from um, May I, Monsieur, and that's me, I'll be Emma, and I'll, I'll do the part of the evangelist reading the... Uh, so we're, we're starting here, so that'll be me, and then you're Debussy. Okay. 186. Uh, 189, I do oh, apologise, 189. That would have been have, very I have, confusing. I might have, yeah, could have been, <laughs> okay. could have been an interesting conversation. <laughs> it would. So, May I, Monsieur, she motioned to the chair next to his. So I'm Debussy. You're Debussy. You're Emma. Yes. Mm. 
There was a pause of a minute or two. You say nothing, monsieur. It doesn't bother me. I could say thank you, naturally, madame, and I would mean that most sincerely. But I find there are only two types of people. The first are those with whom one has nothing in common, usually because they're ignorant. Talking to them is pointless. The second are those with whom one might have some true commonality. In this case, they already know as much as you do, in which case talking to them is unnecessary. <laughs> that makes perfect sense, she said, knowing already that he was testing her. You realise that obliges you to say nothing to most people. It does, fortunately, he said. You see, the trouble with most people, madame, is that they don't very much like things that are beautiful. Beauty is so far from their nasty little minds. Indeed. Thank you very much. Yep. Thank you, Ruth, for the book. Yep. So she's just sung his book. That's, for, that, so that's from Debussy Letters, by the way. That's uh, he, he, actual, that's actual, mm. actual dialogue. Yep. Yep. Goodness sake. What a strange man. Yep. Anyway, he, she had just sung his song, Bonsoir. But I know Ruth. I will get it back to her. Yep. Um, Thank you, Ruth. Thank you, Ruth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that happens. The, um, the conversation. Where did my notes yep. go? And then... Um, uh, he, they, they then start a relationship. They're both in their middle age. Yes. He's married to a model. Yep. In the photos I've seen of Emma, Emma Bardak, she is no model. No, but she's a fascinating-looking woman. Okay. Um, and and uh, with a, a, a fascinating intelligence, and apparently a terrific, you know, a marvelous person to be with. I mean, okay. she, she was pretty captivating, actually. Um. She, uh, uh, they then go to, he seduces her some days later in his studio. How does he seduce her? He, he improvises. Yes, he sits, he calls her up one day, she comes to visit him, and he says nothing. And he simply plays the piano for her for about an hour and a half. And then he turns to her and says, what do you reckon? And she says? She says, uh, Oh, all right then. And, um, and they elope. They run away. They run away to the Channel Islands. Um, while, while she's musing in her head while he's improvising for an hour and a half, yeah. she says, oh, look, if we have this affair, it might scandalise Paris for days. Mm. It, in fact, this it reminds me of kind of Steve Smith with the ball tampering affair. He was thinking... <laughs> This can be over, we just move on. Limited that's damage fine. control. Limited yeah. damage, that's no problem at all. So what happened? Did it scandalise Paris for days? It did, um, the, especially since when Claude's wife found out about the elopement, um, she shot herself. <laughs> Here we go again. Did she die? <laughs> no, she didn't die. She did not um, die. <laughs> <laughs> but she actually, this time she had a really good go at it. She actually shot herself below the left breast and uh, carried the bullet for the rest of her life. Yes. Uh, and that absolutely scandalised Paris and it was the full thing of everybody taking size, sides and he, he lost most of his circle of friends. Um, uh, but he stayed with Emma Bardac uh, until he died and they, they, had a, they had a child together, in fact. They did. Mm. Uh, they, she divorced the husband, the divorce settlement. He was a very wealthy. The divorce settlement did yep. not go in her favour. So I assume they lived on his earnings or in relative <laughs> poverty. Yep. They had a daughter. Mm. Uh, he gets cancer. He gets cancer. He gets bowel and dies. cancer and dies at the age of 55. 
And the daughter then dies. The daughter dies of, of um, diphtheria the following year. Yeah. Mm. Um, so there's Debussy. Let's hear Beausoir. This is the song that Emma sang to him at the salon when they first met. Mm. Uh, the thing is, uh, on the one hand, you've got this somewhat prickly, famously prickly character who nevertheless, you know, apparently was a marvellous friend, but a prickly character, and then he goes and writes something like that. Mm. I mean, really. How could you not fall in love with someone who writes That's a piece right. like that? I mean, and it's, why would he need a, to speak while he's trying why to would seduce you? Need, <laughs> why would you need, <laughs> And they, they come, there's, there's lots we haven't said. There's a, yes. I've just got to quickly mention the very last story in the book, Paul, which Go is um, Berlioz. The, which, in which Berlioz comes back, but this time as a man, a 60-year-old man, who meets a very young woman in the, in, in the Montmartre Cemetery, as a matter of fact. And um, she's at the grave of um, uh, her late husband, and she's about 26, and he's at the grave of, of both of his wives. He married twice, and they both predeceased him. 
and they talk and, and uh, talk more and form a very close friendship and uh, fall in love. She declares her love for him and says, I'm prepared to, to go there. I'm prepared to go to this. Um, to, I'm prepared to go to the place where love lasts forever. He'd, he'd written a song called The Unknown Isle, in which a, a, a woman says, take me to the place where love lasts forever. And the boatman says, sadly, no such place exists. You know, would, would you like to go someplace else? So she declares her love for Berlioz, and he agonises about this with a friend and finally thinks, I can't, I can't do this to her. I can't do this to her. So he, he calls it off, and she's, she's distraught. And six months later, he's visiting the grave of his wife, and he notices a new grave at the end, and he goes down to have a look, and it's her. Mm. She died of... She knew she was dying. She was dying. She did not shoot herself. She did not shoot herself. She was... No. She was, she was terminally ill, and he, mm. he never knew. Yeah. Christopher, incredible story. It, it's an astonishingly wonderful book. I enjoyed thoroughly reading it. Uh, David, who also read the book and then chose how we would put the music together... Well done, David. ...also well done. enjoyed the book immensely. While you're at it, please thank Peter Guy and Gavin Clark as well as yes. David Banning. Christopher, do you have time for book signing afterwards? I do. I've, uh, got, I've got a train at five to six. Okay, so there's a bit of time. Uh, Christopher would love to sign some books. There is a little bit of time now for some questions, if you have any questions. There's, uh, I'm not quite sure how we're all going to hear each other, but uh, give it a go. Uh -huh, well, oh, right. Yeah, yeah. That's a great question. All right, well, I think... Um, Louis Armstrong. The question, the question was, why, why Bing Crosby and, and Satchmo, in addition to uh, Eric Satie? Yeah. Eric Satie. Well, Eric Satie, um, because, amongst other things, all, uh, much of what we consider to be ambient music uh, and Muzak was pioneered by Eric Satie, who invented what he called furniture music. So the idea that one could listen to music uh, in a different way than hitherto is, is that. Um, in the case of Louis Armstrong, uh, you don't have jazz uh, and New Orleans jazz without, without Louis Armstrong. And one could argue that the, the, the onflow from jazz into everything from, uh, everything from rhythm and blues and what we now consider to be rock music, the flow on from jazz is, is so profound that it changed all of music afterwards. And in the case of Bing Crosby, um, well, he pioneered the use of recording techniques. He, he was the one who learned how to... The, the electric microphone came into being in the late 1920s, and the first uh, performer to really seize the implication of the microphone was, uh, was Bing Crosby. And he also invested heavily in... Um, in basically, we, we don't have magnetic recording tape without Bing Crosby. He, he was a seed investor, what, they call, what you call the angel investor, into the development of, of magnetic tape, which is how uh, recordings were made from the 1940s onwards. So, there are on the flow on from Crosby. He was also the most successful vocalist of all time. He sold more records than, than anyone else. And everybody works with microphones the way they do now because of, of, of Crosby. It's a, it's, you, you, you have to think beyond um, the road to Morocco. And um, uh, uh, I mean, I think he's one of the great intuitively good performers ever, but his influence on recording techniques and the technology of recording is unmatched. Mm. 
Ruth? I'm sort of still on the theme of passion and emotions and things, but at the other end of the scale, death. Have you um, thought about, given any thought to what music you would want at your funeral, and if so, what would that be? <laughs> Successfully or unsuccessfully? <laughs> that is a... I, I, no, I've never thought of it, actually. No. Um, I've never, I've never th I might leave it up to, you know, my wife. She, who, unless she's, she ends up shooting me. I, think. <laughs> but, um, uh, I haven't. No, I haven't. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think it'll be a jokey one. You know how people often sort of have a bit of a gag? Um, you know, the, as the curtains close, um, you'll get something by the Shirelles or something, or yeah. the, the Ramones. But um, no, I haven't, I haven't thought about it that. Was, it's very interesting, the jokey, the jokey, you mentioned the jokey there. When I was talking to Christopher before our, uh, our event and I was saying, we could do this, we could read the bits of the book and that'd be funny and we could do this and that might be funny. And Christopher went, in hindsight, I suppose the book is funny. But <laughs> it, it is wasn't... Quite, it's quite a funny book. It's, yeah. it, it has thigh-slapping humour but it's also very profound and very, very deep into uh, these complex, strange lives. Uh, you can't honour love too much because, let's face it, it's, it's a fairly ridiculous position to be in, isn't it? You, do, you, do, you often make ridiculous decisions, um, frequently wrong ones, and do ridiculous things. So this, this, this whole, this book, much of the book is about people doing ridiculous things. Uh, in, the, in the name of love. And the other thing that you have to disabuse yourself of is the fact that you can be in the grip of this emotion and then go, I'm going to turn it into a symphony because that, that's, just, that's, not, that's not how they work. But Berlioz said, you can only describe the moon by observing its reflection in the bottom of a well, meaning that you need to have some distance between yourself and the event, um, whether it's a chronological distance or some sort of intellectual distance uh, before you can actually sort of engage with it, with it properly. Uh, it, it sounds sort of similar to if you're a performer on stage, the operatic performer, for instance, and you actually are emotionally moved genuinely to cry, mm. you'll probably lose the audience. Yep. You can yep. pretend to cry, you can act crying, and you can do your craft and get the audience to cry, but if you do it yourself, you'll probably lose them. So yep. that's sort of coming from the same place. It, it is a bit. Um, of course, method acting would say you have to project yourself directly into that situation. You know, imagine how it feels when you lose your dog. You know, the, the tears will come. But, they, but when it comes to the organisation of sound, that's yeah. an entirely different process. Mm -hmm. mm. Excellent. Christopher, thank you so much. Have thank a safe you all for being... Uh, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Have a safe trip. Thanks, Paul. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation from the 2018 Newcastle Writers Festival. Join us in 2019 from April 5 to 7 and follow us on Facebook for regular updates.